All right, you ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what you've done already. I hope that this is just a frosting on top and that each one of us would be able to take away even if it's just one thing from the message this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's kind of funny. We've been talking about the name of Jesus, and it is a very powerful name uh, we've been talking about this morning. A few years ago, uh, I used to regularly do mission trips to Mexico, and we would go, uh, we, it would be like, a, we would get into a city, San Luis Potosí, and then it would be about a two and a half hour drive to the Pueblos, uh, to these little uh, mountain villages where we would go, and, and we kind of hit the same ones over and over and over. And one time, we were on the way there, and we got pulled over uh, by the uh, federales, the Mexican police. Uh, there's one difference, though, is uh, most federales had like a dark blue uniform, and I noticed these guys had a black uniform. So we're in the van, vans actually, two or three vans, and we get pulled over, and there's like six guys, and they don't have handguns. They have submachine guns. I'm thinking to myself, man, what did the missionary do? You know, <laughs> I'm like kind of freaking out, and I'm in the van, and I, I can hear. So finally, you know, the kids are getting a little uh, concerned. And so what happens is they open the doors, and, and some of these cops, they begin to look into the vans. And what do they see? Uh, we're from Washington, so what they see is a bunch of blonde-haired, blue-eyed, very, very uh, North American-looking kids on these two vans. And all of a sudden, the thought comes into my heart, oh, no, you know these might not be cops at all. The way they were looking, it was almost like, you know, a rancher looks over his cattle. And so I, I immediately get out, I go to the missionary, and he's arguing with the guy, and he's slapping money into his hand, more and more money. And I'm thinking to myself, uh-oh, something is really going down here because he's never, you know. And uh, so finally he puts his last uh, thing of money on there, and I kind of come up next to him and, he said, you know, he, he leans over to me, he says, pray in the spirit now. I said, okay, so I start praying in the spirit, and they're arguing back and forth, they're arguing back and forth, and finally, uh, he just kind of puts his hands up like this. He never touched the guy, but he puts his hands up like this. He says, in the name of Jesus, we are going to go now, and he grabbed my arm, he said, get in the van. We got in the vans, and we drove off, and I looked back. And I could tell that they were, like, wanting to follow us. But they never did. And a few years ago, uh, John, the missionary, he was at my house. And I was talking about that event, you know. And I said, man, that's, that's funny how you paid those cops off that one time. And I said, you were like a Jedi, you know. You will let us go, you know. <laughs> He's like, no, I said it different than that. I said, no, but that's the way I remember it, you know. You will let us go. And, uh, and he said, well, he said, you know, actually, I forgot to tell you, but, you know, those were Zetas. Zetas. Nobody really knew much about them 10 years ago, but everybody knows them today. They're the ones that kidnap and ransom, and they were trained by the American Special Forces, uh, you know, people, and then they sent back to Mexico to help Mexico, but they rebelled and, and uh, went to a drug cartel. We were pulled over by these people who regularly abduct and they must have looked at our two vans and thought, you know, this is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you know. And he said, you know, 
he said, I was, I was literally thinking, this is it. You know, we're dead. This is it. He said, this is the most scared moment I've ever had in my ministry. And he said, at the end, I knew that was just, I just had to let spiritual power take over. Because if I continued to argue with them, one of them would have just crushed me with their rifle. And he just said, I remember that. In the name of Jesus, we are going to go. Get back in the van. We got in the vans, drove off, and they never pursued. They never followed. And I remember thinking to myself, what power there is. We don't know. We are playing with such power when we began to invoke the name of Jesus. And I didn't even realize until 10 years later what had actually gone down. But now that I remember that, I think, man, we don't realize the power of the God that is behind us. Amen? It comes exactly to our story with Elijah. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 18, you hear a very famous story of the prophet Elijah, one prophet Elijah, challenging the 450 prophets of Baal. And so we're going to go ahead and start. Uh, let's go to the next slide real quick. First of all, last week we talked about Solomon. Life after Solomon was essentially not very good. Uh, Solomon never passed his faith on to Rehoboam, as far as we can tell. Uh, Rehoboam threatens tyranny, and with that threat, Israel divides into the northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. Both kingdoms begin to add gods to their God. And there's a question for us this morning. Have you or have I added gods to my God? Sure, I worship and trust God, but are there some other gods that we trust in as well, just in case God doesn't do for us what we want him to do? And this is exactly the situation that the Israelites find themselves in, and Elijah comes and tries to bring about a revival of faith and purify their religion so that they trust in God and trust in him alone, and I'm going to give you the reason why in a second. So the next slide. My first point is this, what doesn't lift you up weighs you down. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, Elijah says to the people of Israel, how long will you waver between God and the Baals? The Baals were really a set of gods uh, that were already in the land when Israel conquered it. Israel conquered it by the power of God, but then quickly abandoned God, and they wanted to sustain it by the power of the Baals. And here is the reason, the primary reason why. The Baals could be manipulated and controlled by the offerings of the people, but Yahweh could not. We surrender to Yahweh, but they tried to, to control the Baals. And so they still got Yahweh as a form of worship, and they would go through that ritual, but they also now added the Baals. In other words, well, I've got God, but I've got a few other things just in case God doesn't work out. Does that sound like a familiar thing? I hear that a lot, whether people know it or not, they say, you know what, I trust in the Lord, but then after a few minutes of conversation, I realize they trust in a lot more things than just the Lord. And this is what Elijah's saying. He's saying, how long will you waver between God and the Baals? Laver, waver, the literal Hebrew word there means to limp. Was he saying, how long is your walk with God going to be a limp? Because you see, God wants us to run and not grow weary. 
walk and not grow faint, but not limp in the valley of indecision. And so he says, how long will you waver between God and the Baals? Essentially saying is, you're living life saying, which God can do the most for me? And Elijah's saying, you know what? How about just love the God who loves you back? Because the Baals don't. Ultimately, they were convinced that adding things outside of God would help them. And a lot of it is this. If we go to the next slide, what doesn't lift you up weighs you down. A lot of faith and spirituality is like this. I used to scuba dive. I used to love scuba diving. I would do it again when I moved to Washington. Eh, it's not so much fun. But down here, I would love to pick it up again, but eh, I'm too lazy. So, uh, <clears throat> but, I, but I'd go scuba diving, and one of the things I loved doing was achieving positive buoyancy. That's where you get in the water, you get down about you know, maybe 20 or 30 feet, and you can just kind of hover and float like you're weightless. You, know? you, 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 you know, uh, pump up the, uh, the, the BCD, and, and then you get your weights. You get everything set to where when you're breathing, you go up a little bit, and when you exhale, you go down a little bit, you know? and you just achieve that positive buoyancy. And I remember I used to love that. And so when we'd go diving, I used to love to just kind of sit there weightless and pretend like I was drifting off in space somewhere. So one time we're doing this dive and uh, I'm sitting there all weightless, you know, and instead of looking at the reef, I'm looking out into the big blue because I'm not stupid. I do want to see if a shark's going to come. Not that I can do much about it, but at least I'll know I'm getting eaten, right? And so, so I'm just kind of sitting there and all of a sudden I get a tap and it's my diving instructor, and he sticks his depth monitor right in front of my mask. And I had gone from 30 meters down to 60 meters, and I didn't even know it. And you don't want to get much lower than 60 meters because then you got to come up in stages, and you get the bends, and you run out of air. And so uh, I, you know, I remember when we got to the surface, he said, you know, there really is no such thing as positive buoyancy. You're either ascending in the water or descending in the water all the time, but you never actually flatline. Now, I think for some of us, think about it. Spiritually, we can come to a place where, you know what? I'm good with God. I'm good with Jesus. I just want to just flatline, you know, just keep things the way they are. Don't rock the boat. Don't really challenge myself spiritually. But, you know, don't get into things that might drag me down spiritually either. I'm just going to coast. You know, this is going to be my life spiritually. And one day I'm going to die and it's going to be great to go to heaven. And that's great. I'm just going to have this nice flat line. But the fact of the matter is, and what Elijah is saying is here is, that's not the way it works. That's impossible. Spiritually, we are either rising or we are falling. And just like me, I didn't realize how I had fallen in those depths because the ankle weights on my ankles were slowly bringing me down. Not quickly, but slowly. It took me probably about 10 minutes to descend that way. And that's a lot of how it is in life. This is where I think if you could ask the Israelites, they, did not, they could not realize how far gone they had become. They probably say, hey, we are worshipers of God. But how the Baals had taken over in their life. And they didn't realize, wait a minute, we are trusting in 20 other things in addition to God. And they were slowly sinking and sinking and sinking. And the heart of God was this. 
he knows what the bales will do to us. The bales don't care about you. If you're poor, they don't care about you. If you're destitute, they don't care about you. If they're sick, they don't care about you. If you're seeking guidance, they can't speak to you. If you want to cry out for comfort, they can't hear you. If you die, they can't raise you from the dead. God has a huge heart for the people. And so the reason he sends Elijah is not just to have this contest, but to show the people, I am the God of power, the God who loves you, and the God who does care if you're hurting, if you're weeping, if you're poor, if you're confused, if you need guidance, I am the God that can do something about it. Anything else in this world is sinking, 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 sinking. So spiritually, if we're not growing in our faith, we're probably decaying in our flesh. Now you may say, well, I don't know if I necessarily feel that. You won't. You won't immediately. Sometimes it can take decades to look back and realize, wow, why was I so much closer to God when I'm 20 and now that I'm 50, I just don't feel that anymore. Because it's a very slow descent. But it's never too late to go, you know what? I'm going to pump some of that air back. I'm going to take a few breaths and I'm going to rise. And even if you've got to rise slowly, I'm going to rise because life is at the surface. Death is at the bottom. Amen? Amen. Number two, when God is lifted up, nobody can keep you down. Look at this. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah says to the, to the false prophets, the prophets of Baal, he says, get two bowls for us and let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces, put the wood, but not set fire on it. So this is what Elijah's going to say. You build the altar, put your sacrifice on it, but don't light it. If your God is the real God, he can light it himself. And the prophets of Baal go, all right, all right, we'll take that challenge. Because they were convinced they were following the true God. They build the altar, but they put the bowl on there, and they start cutting themselves and doing this ecstatic thing, and nothing is happening. And look at what Elijah says. He says in verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them, saying, shout louder. Surely he is a God. Perhaps your God is deep in thought. Or maybe he's busy. Or maybe he's traveling. Or maybe he is sleeping and he must be awakened. And so they start getting louder and louder and louder. This goes on for four hours. For four hours, they are praying to Baal and nothing happens. And then Elijah says, just stop. Just be done with it already. Nothing's going to happen because that's not a God to trust in. And then he calls a few people and says, come here. Now help us rebuild the altar of the Lord. He selected 12 stones to correlate to the 12 tribes of Israel. He built the altar as prescribed in the book of Leviticus. He laid the offering on it as described in the book of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he steps back and he begins to pray. The interesting thing about God is not just what he does in and through us, 
but what he does when we take a stand in our faith. And Elijah is about to take the stand of his life. If he's wrong, they won't just kill him. They'll skin him. This is, this is serious stuff here. If he's right, then it's him against 450 prophets. So there's a big thing going down here. But sometimes, every now and then, we've got to boldly declare, just like that missionary did, in the name of Jesus, we are going to go now. In the name of Jesus, this needs to stop. Uh, one time, uh, I had a, a, I think I've told the story before, but I love telling it because I can remember that moment so clearly. But we had a young lady uh, who was in our youth group. She graduated. She became an intern at the church. And she was really on fire for the Lord. She started attending community college. And one of the people who was at the community college, one of the other students who was a little older, uh, described himself as an empath. All right? Uh, that, I've, never re- I've not seen a lot of New Age stuff down here. But up in the Seattle-Tacoma area where, where we came from, there's a lot of it. And, uh, and so stuff like empaths and warlocks and witches and all that kind of thing, you know, that is very prevalent. I mean, to the, to, when they have the convention, there's like thousands of them that come. And so this is a, this is a thing. And what they do is, is they, they, it's like a kind of a psychic reading, but not, it's a psychic reading that's emotional. And they take their hand, they place it on yours, and they began to describe your emotions, how you're feeling, and then, and then they began to manipulate them. Now, you may say, how do they do that? I'm not really sure other than there must be a demonic power behind it. Uh, or, or they're just really good mentalists. I'm not sure. But uh, at the school that this lady was attending, there was a kid there who was going up and essentially empathing uh, a lot of these students. And, and eventually, the, the guy had about 10 to 15 girls who were following all around. And he dressed in black in a long trench, black trench coat and, you know, and, and, was, and was doing this. And every time our intern would walk by on the way to class, he would kind of taunt her and say, hey, come on over. Let's, you know, let's, l- l- let me uh, read your emotions for you, you know, and just kind of always, you know, and every time she'd walk by, she'd walk by faster because she'd get kind of scared. Well, one, you know, and we were, she had talked to me about this. We were praying about it. Well, one day as she's walking by, he does it again, and she just gets furious. So she drops her book bag to the ground and she walks up to him. She puts her hands on her hands and she says, in the name of Jesus, you know nothing of real power. And when she did that, the man flew back like five steps, picked up his book bag and walked off. And I think to myself, amen, amen, right? Amen, you know nothing of real power in the name of Jesus. And she literally backed up that guy and said, you know, he was, he had never seen him again at that spot, you know, uh, kind of always avoided her from there on out because there is power in the name of Jesus. Amen. Number three, when prayer is lifted up, our pride dwindles down. <clears throat> this is what Elijah steps forward and says. He says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. It's important when you're ever going to step out in faith, make sure it's God leading you. If it's you leading you, you can look very stupid. And I've seen some people, this, I'm led of the Lord, and they do all this stuff and they look ridiculous. 
And then they get, start to question their faith. Oh, I don't know if there really is a God because I stepped out in faith and nothing happened. I'm like, you know what? Was God ever leading that in the first place? Because for a lot of us, we really didn't think that was God. So you want to make sure. Elijah had taken three years to make sure that this contest was the contest he was called to. Three years. That's a long time to get some confirmation. And he says in verse 37, this is beautiful. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again to you. In verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate, prostrate, and cried, Lord, he is God. He is God. He is God. Let's say that. The Lord, he is God. Say it again. The Lord, he is God. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. I had a good friend of mine uh, who told me a story. He had said, you know, Tom, I, I, I was one of those guys where I was not going to bow my knee to Jesus unless something happened. I said, what do you mean something happened? He's like, I needed to see lightning in the sky. I needed to see a healing right in front of me. I needed to see it. And I was not going to be convinced until something happened. And I said, well, what happened? I said, did you see a healing? Oh, no. I said, well, did the lightning come in the sky? Nope, didn't see that either. I said, well, you're a Christian. Something must have happened. He said, you know, he's like me. He has a hard time crying, okay? Pa- Pastor Wayne, he can cry on command. I love it. I wish I could do that. I, when I go and I pray for him, I hope that there's a little exchange, you know, that, that he'll get some of me and I'll get the crying, you know? Because I just can't weep like that. I want to, but I just can't. I, I, I'm not. It just doesn't happen to me like that. Paul was the same. It doesn't happen to him that way either. And he said, I was in church, and I said to myself, I am not leaving. Either I never come to church again, or I'm not leaving here until Jesus reveals himself to me. And so he stayed there, and he stayed there, and he stayed there. And... uh he said, this is what began to happen. I began to weep and cry and weep and weep and weep so much. It was as if a dam had burst in my heart. And he said, I remember saying, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Didn't see healing. The lightning didn't go in the sky. He never flew like Superman. Some of the things he was saying that would have to happen for him to believe. (laughs) He just had that one moment where God busted open the dam of his heart and he never looked back. He was the one who would always say to me, Tom, I've followed Jesus all my life and I've got no regrets. Number four. When our knees go down, our perseverance lifts up. Uh, In verse 41, Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Very limber guy. Uh, Verse 43, go and look toward the sea, told his servant. And when he went up, the servant came back, and he said, nothing is there. (laughs) Now, wait a minute. 
Isn't this horrible? Isn't God playing with Elijah a little bit? When Elijah needed the fire to come down to lick up the sacrifice, how many prayers did it take? One, right? Answer me, O Lord, that these people will know that you are turning their hearts back again. Boom, the fire comes, you know? What happens when Elijah goes to pray for rain? It doesn't happen the first time. It doesn't happen the second time. It doesn't happen the third time. It doesn't happen the fourth time. You'd think by the fifth time, that's how many fingers he's got on one hand, it didn't happen the fifth time. Did not happen the sixth time. After six times of praying for something, how many of you would go, you know what, I give up. I guess God just doesn't want this to happen after six times, Right? It wasn't until after Elijah prayed the seventh time that his servant comes back and says, I see a cloud beginning to form over the western sea. It's only about the size of a man's fist right now. And Elijah says, stop, don't say anything more. Tell everybody to hitch up their wagons because the storm is coming. And sure enough, within a few minutes, a raging storm begins to engulf the nation of Israel. But here is, here is the teaching in this. I think too many of us have went before God for something. God, I need you to do this in my life. And you gave God one shot. You gave him his one shot. And when it didn't happen that one time, you concluded, well, that must not be how it works. That must not be how prayer works. It must, must you know, There must not really be power in prayer. Or maybe there's power in Tom's prayers, but not mine. And I can assure you, there's no more power in what I say than what you say. We can walk away giving up way too quick. If Elijah teaches us anything, when you know that you know that you know it's God leading, you pray until it happens. It may not come the first time. May not come the second time. May not come the third time. And I see this all the time with kids, parents praying for their kids. Don't stop praying. Kids praying for their parents. Don't stop praying. Uh, people praying for if there's a divorce or something that they're going through or hope they don't have to go through. Don't stop praying. If there's financial trouble, don't stop praying. Don't just kind of give God a one-hit wonder. And then hope that that was like some sort of rubbing the genie's bottle that you can get what you need. Because I'll tell you something right now. Every time Elijah prayed, it was strengthening his faith, not weakening it. For he knew he was building up a seed that was going to explode. And sure enough, once it did, I mean, he said, go tell everybody to leave because there's going to be a mudslide here in a few minutes perseverance. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up on God. These three circles we just prayed for, so you may think, okay, this is my bone I'll toss God. If something happens as a result of these prayer circles, then I'll think God is real, and I'll think this church has got power. Don't do that. It doesn't work that way. That's the sin of presumption. That's saying, God, you got to do this in order for me to be convinced and be your follower. God is God. God is God. We surrender before him. We don't make him surrender before us. Amen? Amen. Before we close today, 
I just want to give a very simple invitation. We started the message this morning with how long will you waver between trusting in God and trusting in the things of the world? I have a feeling that few of you here have little trust, little to no trust in God. You wouldn't be here if there wasn't something that drew you in. But I have a good feeling that probably many of us may have trust in God and something else just in case God don't come through. What that's really evidence of is we don't know what God's called us to. We don't know where God's leading us. When you don't know where God's leading you, you are going to trust in other things because you just don't know if what is backing the power that's backing you is God or not. So, Father, my first prayer is that people would have that confidence inside their conscience. I know the Lord's path for me, and I'm going to walk in it. But, Father, the second thing I want to pray for is that we would not have a religion before you. See, we become religious when we got a little bit of God, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know, that's religion, trying to control God, trying to see which God is going to do for us. Rather than a relationship which says, you know what, what can I do for my God? What can we do in our loving relationship together? And so before service ends this morning, I just want to ask you, is there anybody here? Like, you know what, I'd like to have a relationship with Jesus. I've made Christianity a religion, and uh, it's been all about what I can get out of God. And this morning, I want to give God me. I want to have a relationship. I want to hear his voice. And I want to clear out all of the other little G gods of my life and make God the sole, supreme, and only God I trust in. And I want to make Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior. Heads bowed, eyes closed. If that's something you would like to do this morning, just go ahead and stand right now. Stand. I know some of you are thinking he's going to ask to look up. You can look at me if you want. That's the way you want to do it. You can make eye contact with me and let me know. But I tell you, there's power in taking a stand for what's right. Power in taking a stand and saying, you know what, Jesus, I want you to see me on my feet, not sitting on my tush.